Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings fellow time travellers, as always it's lovely to have you with me for the journey through space and time together. Uh, before we get started on today's episode, I want to and have to say my usual big thanks to all the people who show their support for the podcast series by signing up to my patreon.com site. It's the finances that come in via the patreon.com presence that make everything else possible and keep the other podcasts free. So if you're already a member of the Patreon site, thank you. If you're not and you'd like to be, then go to patreon.com, search for me by name and go through the rigmarole, part with a bit of cash, become a member of the family, get access to all of the material, the question and answers, the competitions, the vodcasts, the podcasts and so on. But I suppose more broadly, it's access to a community, even a family of questioning, like-minded, history-fascinated types. Come along, it'd be lovely to have you. That's the advert over. Now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A religious whirlwind that would kill thousands has been unleashed in Germany. Reaching England it becomes entangled with one man's earthly desires for a pretty woman and his obsession for a son to secure the royal line. There is no rage like love turned to hatred, or fury like that of a woman scorned. The king declares himself head on earth of the Church of England, and the Reformation has well and truly arrived. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Daniel, in last week's episode, it was 1519, as we set off with Magellan and Elcano on their perilous voyage to circumnavigate the world for the very first time. Where are we this week? Hello again, Paul. Yes, last week it was about a world's first, that being the first time a human being, or some human beings, had successfully travelled around the world. This week, though, we're crossing the English Channel and changing tack completely. We're steeping ourselves in a toxic mix of politics, passion and religious unrest. It's 1534 and we're in England as Henry VIII stamps his authority on the church. We're in England and we're with probably, I suppose if you stop ten people in the street and ask them to name a figure from English history, it's Henry VIII. Everyone's heard of Henry VIII, not just in England and Britain, but, you know, he's just one of those figures. There's been a million books written about him and a million films and all of the rest of it. So um, it's it's Henry, dear old Henry, uh, vicious old uh, 
monster that he was. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, to, to, to set the context, back in 1517, as we know, Martin Luther inadvertently triggered the Reformation. He was upset about his fellow churchmen selling indulgences, giving people get-out-of-purgatory-free cards in return for cold cash and 94 other things besides that he pinned to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517, the 95 Theses, as they were called. Anyway, like I say, there was a storm ensued from 1517 onwards, and it, like bad weather, it just went back and forth across Europe and Britain and the world to some extent. So, that being the context, fast forward a few years to 1524, right? Now imagine the scene. We're at the Royal Palace in Greenwich. Obviously, Greenwich is of a different nature now. For most people, it's the Royal Observatory and all the rest of it. But in, in the time of Henry VIII, it was all about the Royal Palace. So we're in there. We're in the grounds of the palace. A patch of ground called the Tilt Yard, which is where the knights would practice their jousting, thundering up and down with lances levelled at one another and all of the rest of it. And Henry VIII had always been a very keen, very athletic, before he became a monstrous bloated old horror he was quite the guy quite the athlete and uh, he was very keen to take part in all of the activities of jousting and knightly combat and so picture the scene we're in the tilt yard in the royal palace at Greenwich and it's like a stage set they called it the white castle some prop some stage set that's been put up for the occasion and in its vicinity there's a lineup of young toffs (laughs) young nobles ready to show off in front of an audience of, well, the Queen Catherine of Aragon and assorted ladies of of the court and their ladies-in-waiting and whatnot are providing the audience. So that's the set, and then clattering into view come two apparently old knights, old men, on horseback, grey hair, straggly beards, and they come forward and they get in between the, the line-up of young nobles, young knights, and the Queen and all her uh, associated ladies. And one of them reads from what you would call a petition. It's a long, well, purple prose, but it includes in part that although youth had left them and age was come and would prevent them to do feats of arms, yet courage, desire and goodwill remained with them and bade them to take upon them to break spears, which gladly they would do. So, high drama, these old guys are going to come and challenge the youngsters to to show that they've still got it in them. Queen Catherine, Catherine of Aragon, gives the thumbs up, gives the go-ahead for the action, and and so it begins. And with a great flourish, they take off their wigs, as it turns out, and their fake beards, and it's Henry VIII, the king, and his best friend, his mucker and brother-in-law, Charles Brandon, who's the Duke of Suffolk. Henry, at this point, is 33 and uh, Brandon is 39. So, you know, by the standards of the day, I suppose they are knocking on a bit. One of the books on my shelves here is... uh, I've got several of David Starkey's books about Tudors, and one of them is The Six Wives of Henry VIII, and within that book, Starkey suggests that in amongst the ladies was Anne Boleyn, the famous, the legend that is, the ghost that walks, Anne Boleyn, she would be about 23 years of age by that point, and she's one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. She's the sister of Mary Boleyn, who had previously been a mistress of Henry VIII. Right, so she took a turn in the saddle, <laughs> as the saddle for Henry VIII. 
but she's the wife of William Carey. Mary is the wife of uh, William Carey, who's a gentleman of the Privy Chamber, but that didn't mean anything, that didn't matter. And, you know, she had done some time, she had served some time as Henry's mistress. So it was in the family, you might say. But it's Anne Boleyn, the younger sister that's there by now as a lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon. And believe it or believe it not, what then ensues is a moment, a, a moment worth considering in the history of England and thereby the history of the world. Henry went after an opponent in the form of young Anthony Brown, who was a contemporary of Anne's, and it was known to all, known to the court, that he and she had been together, well, in the same geographical location, in the same postcode, in the French court. And that may or may not have played towards Henry's jealousy. Starkey writes, Was King Henry also fighting in Anne's presence and for her? to show that he alone was fit. So David Starkey suggests it's, it's not known if Anne Boleyn was actually there, but he, it, there's good reason to think she was. She was definitely one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting at that time, and it, it would hardly have been unlikely that she was there in the audience. But let's imagine he was showing off because Anne had already caught his eye. And it's certainly the case that soon after that event, which is, you know, which is well testified, it definitely happened, uh, the, the jousting in front of the White Palace... Henry certainly then set his hat at Anne Boleyn. And it would hardly be out of character for Henry because he tended, as you would, he tended to pay attention to whoever was in his line of sight. It's like that bit in uh, The Silence of the Lambs when Hannibal Lecter says, you know, how do we begin to covet? We covet what we see every day. So Anne Boleyn was there and had fallen under Henry's gaze and he was attracted to her. And by that point, his marriage, Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, had effectively run its course. She was not a blushing bride when she came to Henry. She had been married, first of all, to Henry's elder brother, Arthur. Henry was never meant to be king. He was the spare. Uh, his elder brother, Arthur, was king. And at 15, was married to... Catherine of Aragon for all of five months uh, when he died of what they called in those days the sweating sickness. Sweating sickness remains mysterious to this day. It may be one of those illnesses that has come and gone. Historically there have been illnesses and viruses and whatever that came and went and sweating sickness may well be something that simply doesn't exist anymore. Any event, after five months of marriage as a 15 year old to Catherine of Aragon, he was harvested by the sweating sickness. So Arthur, the would-be King Arthur, is out of the picture. And when Henry VII, the father, dies in 1509, Henry succeeds him as king. He's 17 at that point. And shortly thereafter pledges to bring poor old Catherine of Aragon back out of retirement. And he marries her. And she becomes his queen. It's almost impossible to imagine how much pressure was on Henry VIII to provide a son and heir. The Tudor line was new. Uh, Henry VII, his father, had been the first of the Tudor family of kings. And so with, with Henry VII gone, uh, obviously Arthur is gone, it's now all on young Henry VIII's shoulders. And apart from anything else, he has to provide a son to continue the line. And it, it, it's, it's impossible really for us to imagine 
the kind of pressure that he was under, the sense of obligation and responsibility that he felt, you know, to deliver the necessary boy child. And so he and Catherine embark on the attempt. There's a stillborn girl in 1510. Then in 1511, there's a boy, uh, and he is Henry, Duke of Cornwall, but he lives for just a couple of months. He dies. Who knows, just doesn't thrive, dies. Then there's another stillborn son in 1513. Then again, in 1515, another stillborn boy. Subsequent to that, Catherine is delivered of Mary. And, of course, Mary will eventually be queen in her own right. But Henry... Henry's desperation for a son continues unabated. And I often wonder, though, the kind of toll that all of that took on Henry and Catherine as human beings. And obviously, they're, they're king and queen, and they, they're, they're cut from a different boat than the likes of you and me. But, but nonetheless, at base, they are two human beings. And, you know, and to have and lose... All of these babies, all of these, all of these stillbirths. You know what kind of harrowing emotional toll did that take on not just on Catherine as the as the mother, but on Henry as well? You know that's a lot of grief. It's, it, I suppose it, it's too easy. It's lazy really to look back on iconic figures like Henry the Eighth and just not really see them as real people. But what was what was that like to live through? In any event, by 1527, he's really looking for a divorce. And he's got Anne Boleyn in the background, in mind, as the successor. And he embarks, really, on a cruel, an ultimately cruel scheme to get rid of Catherine of Aragon, to get her out of his hair. And what he does is he invokes what's called, or what was called, the Leviticus Curse. It's from Leviticus in the Old Testament, Leviticus 20, 21. And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness and they shall be childless. Okay, so the, 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 the idea was that, you know, if, if you did what Henry had done and marry your brother's widow, it was unclean. Now, it certainly hadn't bothered him to begin with. And there's plenty of evidence for genuine love, certainly affection between Henry and Catherine. But... By 1527, when he's under increasing pressure and it becomes increasingly unlikely that he's going to have a son with Catherine, he, he takes the, the step of just deciding to put her to one side. And so he's, he's looking for justification for divorce, which within the Catholic Church was, and you might say still is, it's a difficult trick to pull off. But he goes to the Pope with this idea that, that because of the Leviticus curse, that he should never have been married to Catherine in the first place. And, and he's obviously saying that because he has breached the Leviticus curse, that is his punishment is to have no son, or no living son. So Henry calls this long, long campaign to get official approval to get divorced his great matter. He needs and wants papal approval for the divorce, but he can't get it. The Pope at the time is Clement VII, and he says, no, it's just not happening. So it drags on for years. In 1532, he gets the support of the English Parliament and declares himself, get this, supreme head on earth of the Church of England. Now this is part and parcel of the Reformation playing out. 
this is the Reformation arriving in England in a material sense. So there's that event in 1532, and then in 1534 there's an act of supremacy which underscores his position as head of the Church of England. And there's no doubting that it's hard. All of it is is spiritually hard on Henry. He was a devout Catholic. As recently as 1521, he had actually condemned Martin Luther. You know, he had spoken out against Martin Luther and the reforms that that he had been calling on. And Clement's, Pope Clement's predecessor had been Adrian VI, Pope Adrian VI. And he had actually made Henry defender of the faith. And that's a title that, that echoes down to, you know, King Charles just coronated, you know, defender of the faith. Was a, was a product of Henry's then staunch defence of the Catholic Church in the face of what Martin Luther was saying. So it would have been very, very difficult for him to break with the Church in that way because he would, he, it would appear that he did have a profound sense of his responsibility to God and to the Church. And to the end of his days, Henry believed that his Church of England was the Catholic Church in all but name. You know, he was just establishing himself as its head so that he could do what he wanted when it came to his marriages. In our day and age, the church is still powerful, but it, it's hard to get your head around how powerful it must have been then, isn't it? It's always hard. It's impossible to know what was actually in any individual's head and heart. And I suppose you'd have to allow for the possibility, maybe, that Henry thought it was all a lot of nonsense. You know, as people in the present day think the faith is a lot of nonsense but it would appear by all outward well all outward appearances would say that Henry VIII was a devout Catholic publicly and privately and to do what he was doing in order to further his needs wants likely took a toll on him And, and it may well play into and begin to explain the transformation that happened in his personality. You know, by the end, he was a dreadful monster of a man. He was injured. He had he had taken on a, a, a jousting injury in his younger days, which was never properly healed and caused him pain and, and discomfort until the end of his days. And there seemed to have been multiple factors playing into a transformation of his character, but the pressure that he was under, needing a son and heir, falling out with the church having to take the stance that he did, who knows what kind of a toll it took on him in terms of his personality. But in any event, all of his desire, all of his determination to get with Anne and to get her legally wed, he was prepared to do whatever it took, and so he did. He had a daughter with Anne Boleyn, but no son. That was the great tragedy of Anne Boleyn's life. Uh, And so, well, long story short, he dispatched Anne Boleyn, uh, she was accused of all sorts of, of being unfaithful to him, to put it simply. A little bit more complicated than that. But in any event, she was beheaded and she was out of the picture as well. Followed up with Jane Seymour, who did give him a son. The son who became, in time, Edward VI king. So there, there he got his heir. There he got his son and heir. Jane died. She never recovered from the childbirth. She died from some or other infection, postpartum, post-childbirth. She didn't survive the childbirth bed. Then that process continued. He married Anne of Cleves and divorced her. He married Catherine Howard. In time, she was beheaded. Finally, he married Catherine Parr, and she outlived him. 
she actually survived the whole process of being married to Henry VIII. The Reformation was in full flower in England, uh, and for that reason, the impact that King Henry VIII made on the destiny of England, and therefore of Britain, and the, the repercussions that it had throughout the world, that meeting with Anne Boleyn was definitely part of the story of the world in a hundred moments. Do you think Henry was aware of the huge religious and political repercussions he was unleashing? You make an assumption that that people 500 years ago were broadly the same. You know, that their circumstances were different and they lived in a different period of history. And But that, but that cognitively and in terms of their... Their, their human consciousness. I, I've done it too. You, you, you indulge yourself with the notion that they were just like us. Uh, and that if they could be, I don't know, transport, transported into our time, that they could cope with it and that they would fit in and that you could, you could talk to them. But more and more, really, I, I entertain the possibility that 500 years ago, let's say, before you get to much further into the past, maybe human consciousness was different. You know, maybe maybe human consciousness has evolved a- along with everything else, and I wonder at the extent to which, let's say, Henry VIII, as a 16th century man, and like like all 16th century men, were just profoundly different. If if they if they had a different perception of reality and spirituality, I, I don't know. But I, I think it, it's too tempting to think that they were just like us. They just happened by chance to be to be born, to live and to die in the 16th century, but if they'd been born in the 21st century, they'd have been, you know, playing with the internet and driving electric vehicles, but, and that they would, they would fit into the way that we perceive reality and the way that we understand the world, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe the, the human consciousness in, in the 16th century, in England and, and elsewhere on the planet, was, was just different, so that we can't really connect with the way their minds worked and, and, and the way that they responded to events. I don't know. One thousand war elephants armed and magnificent. One hundred thousand warriors well trained and fierce, determined to crush the puny new kid on the block who's come calling with an army a mere ten thousand strong. For the first time on the Indian subcontinent, heavy artillery opens fire. The effect is dramatic and cataclysmic, and a cornerstone of the Islamic Mughal Empire is laid. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it and get them listening. And write a review, maybe, to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Arch and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. 
Thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.